This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Today is the inaugural event for the new Center for Security in Politics, which is a center founded and run by the Goldman School's Janet Napolitano, who knows quite a bit about politics and security. CSP is the first of its kind across the country, an academic center focused solely on the nexus of security in politics. It is not a timely topical nexus in light of what we have just seen politically across the country and what we've experienced over the last few years. We are proud to have this center here at Berkeley and in Goldman. Today's the center's inaugural event and let me introduce our distinguished moderator for today's discussion, the Honorable Douglas B. Wilson. Doug's 40-year career in public service is nothing short of amazing. Most recently, he served as Assistant Secretary of Defense, where he led the largest communications public affairs group in the world. He was awarded the Distinguished Public Service Medal three times, and he also helped to lead the effort to repeal and replace the don't ask, don't tell policy at the Department of Defense. He's worked in both the public and private sectors, advising corporations from Boeing to Microsoft and presidential candidates from Gary Hart, Bill Clinton to Pete Buttigieg. Doug, that's an amazing career. And thank you for being with us for this kickoff event today. Please take it from here. Dean Brady, thank you very much. Um, And congratulations to you and to Secretary Napolitano and the University of California at Berkeley uh, and your Goldman School of Public Policy for this uh, initial event, founding of the Center for Security and Politics. Uh, Given all that's going on in today's world, um, the word I think of uh, what you've done is prescient. Um, This is an absolutely amazing time uh, to be focusing on on the work that you're gonna be doing and I'm very excited to be part of this inaugural event. Um, To those who are participating in this event and listening in, this is a very, very special discussion in my view. We are joined today by four of America's leading experts and thought leaders on security and politics. The Department of Homeland Security has been in existence for 20 years. And the discussions today are the four men and women who have led the department from its inception to the beginning of the Trump administration. We all remember where we were on September 11th, 2001. And in the wake of that terrible event, um, then President Bush established the Department of Homeland Security and appointed a two-term governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Ridge, to be its first secretary. Governor Ridge is an accomplished uh, lawyer. He has served in the US Army. Um, He today advises both public and private sector individuals on a variety of security and risk management issues. Governor Ridge, welcome. The second uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, is currently chairman of the Chertoff Group. He was the secretary uh, from 2005 to 2009, um, appointed by President George W. Bush. He's a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice William Brennan and is one of this country's noted legal and security experts. Secretary Chertoff, welcome. 
Now a professor of public policy at the Goldman School, my friend for 40 years, Janet Napolitano, is now also the director of this new Center for Security and Politics at UC Berkeley. She was also the 20th president of the University of California and served as Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama. She is a former two-term governor of Arizona, a former attorney general of Arizona, and a former U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona. Secretary Napolitano, thank you for having us and welcome. Jay Johnson followed Secretary Napolitano as Secretary of Homeland Security during President Obama's second term. I had the pleasure of meeting and serving with him when he was general counsel for the Department of Defense under President Obama. Uh, he also served as general counsel for the Air Force on, uh, during the Clinton administration. And if you'll permit me a personal note, I'm just absolutely delighted uh, to also note that Jay Johnson was co-chair of the effort uh, to repeal the Don't Ask, Don't Tell legislation. He now practices law and serves as a regular commentator for a variety of television news outlets. He's a graduate of Morehouse and of Columbia Law. Um, he's debated at both Oxford and Cambridge Union, so fellow panelists, you know, be aware. And Secretary Johnson, welcome. We all on this panel uh, remember a time when elections were sacrosanct, um, when you went to the polls, when you voted, when there was a winner, when whoever lost uh, acknowledged that. Transitions were smooth. Um, the threats to our national security came from abroad. Um, and beginning in 2016, uh, even then, uh, the, the threat of Russian interference was, was a prime topic. In our last election, that changed and domestic violence and threats from within uh, rose to the fore. We saw things on January 6th that none of us have ever seen before with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We await next week a second impeachment of the 45th president. The trial begins next week. So as we begin this discussion to the members of the panel, I think we want to focus on how did we get here? What is it going to take to get us out of here? And what are we going to do to address the problems while we are here? When the Department of Homeland Security was established with Governor Ridge, when you were the first secretary of that department, the focus was international terrorism, particularly from uh, radicals and terrorists in the Middle East. But Secretary Napolitano, in the final years of your tenure, you noted that lone wolves within the United States were the greatest threat to our security. Um, so Secretary Ridge, let me just start with you by asking this question. Do we now have the greatest threat to American security from lone wolf aggregated? Is this now the greatest threat? Well, first of all, I want to thank you and uh, the school and my colleagues uh, to be on the panel with such distinguished colleagues and I might add friends, it's a great pleasure for me. And just a quick anecdote uh, as it refers to uh, uh, your opening comments. Uh, on 9-11, 2001, I was in Shanksville overseeing a smoldering hole where Flight 93 went inverted at over 500 miles an hour into the uh, 
into the ground in Pennsylvania. Uh, but Americans from all walks of life uh, chose to, uh, to frustrate uh, the effort of uh, terrorists to breach the Capitol. Uh, fast forward almost 20 years. Uh, and uh, January 6, uh, unfortunately, the Capitol was breached not by foreign terrorists, but by Americans. And it puts in part, in perspective, the change in the, uh, uh, the domestic political environment and perhaps reflect in a modest way the change in the, uh, the global environment vis-a-vis -vis security and politics. Uh, I think the, uh, it is pretty clear that the threat has uh, metastasized since those early uh, analysis of the threat uh, merged, emerged in the end of 2001 and 2002. Uh, the, uh, we pretty much narrowly defined the group of terrorists. Well, we now, now it's global. And, uh, but in addition to that global scourge, and it is indeed a global scourge, we've seen the uh, ascension of a much more nationalistic Russia, a much more expansionist uh, China that's military, diplomatic, and economic reach has uh, moved aggressively in this past 15 or 20 years. And then on top of all of that, uh, you note the uh, extremism in the United States and the lone wolf. And unfortunately, even the notion of lone wolf uh, domestic terrorism is somewhat of a misnomer because as we've seen from some of the arrests and some of the monitoring of some of these extremist groups, they don't act in isolation, they act in concert. So you take the totality of those threats that have emerged and expanded since uh, 2001, President Biden inherits probably the most complex set of both domestic and international threats to domestic, uh, to our security uh, and our political system that we any modern day president has ever seen. Secretary Ridge, let me build on that and, and, and ask Secretary Napolitano, uh, you know, as, as the person who first identified the lone wolf threat, uh, your friend, L.A. Mayorkos is now taken the reins at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, in your view, is the Department of Homeland Security prepared for the kind of threat that you first identified and that we have seen uh, in its latest manifestation on January 6th? Thanks, Doug. And uh, I too wanna thank my, my fellow uh, panelists and, and friends who have also served as secretary of what is the third largest department of the federal government um, I, you know, like President Biden, uh, now Secretary Mayorkas inherits an, an extraordinarily complex threat environment. Um, I don't know that I was the first to identify lone wolves um, uh, as, a, as an interior threat to the security of the United States. Uh, but I agree with Secretary Ridge that... Uh, that threat has uh, changed now into uh, a whole cluster of groups um, uh, uh, who are uh, willing to um, uh, commit uh, acts of violence uh, uh, in furtherance of uh, whatever their political views happen to be. Um, and, and that uh, changing threat environment, I think, is a hallmark of the Department of Homeland Security. The threat environment constantly changes. And the department needs to be able to change with it. Uh, one of the um, issues uh, that 
uh, Secretary Mayorkas is going to have to deal with, however, is that the department is coming out of four years where there's been a constant uh, turnover in leadership, uh, where many of the leadership positions in the department have been left vacant uh, for some substantial periods of time, uh, and where there's been no strategic um, direction for the department, at least one that is uh, apparent uh, to me. Uh, and so he's going to have to uh, uh, change uh, and move the department to deal with uh, the current threat environment. Uh, he's going to have to help develop a new strategic direction for what uh, the Department of Homeland Security needs to focus on. Uh, and uh, at the same time, he's going to have to uh, keep looking ahead to what the next threats are likely to be and where, where they are likely to come from. So it, it, is, uh, uh, it is not an easy set of tasks that he has before him. Secretary Chertoff, just building on uh, what Secretary Napolitano has just said, um, given the nature of the kinds of threats that we're seeing uh, exemplified by the January 6th, when you were Secretary of Homeland Security, did you feel you had the tools to deal with these kinds of threats? And what are the kinds of tools, what are the kinds of capabilities that you would like to see the legislative branch, if any, give to the department now to be able to deal with these more effectively? Well, I first of all, congratulate you on this new enterprise, this new center, and um, you know, my friend uh, John Napolitano for, for launching this. Um, I don't want to repeat what, what uh, Tom and Janet have said. Uh, let me say this. I don't know that it's so much an issue of authorities as it is an issue of strategic redirection. Uh, obviously, we need to continue to deal with global jihadism. Um, I know that for at least for some period of time, CISA at DHS has been looking at the issue of dis foreign disinformation efforts, and that's got to continue. But I think what is different is uh, the challenge of dealing with domestic terrorism, given the legal constraints that apply when you are investigating U.S. citizens, particularly for things that move back and forth between political speech and actual incitement of terrorist plotting. So, uh, you know, there's been some talk about having a domestic terrorism statute. I would be careful about that because you have to be sure you don't wind up uh, incidentally or even intentionally encroaching on areas that are First Amendment protected. On the other hand, I don't think the First Amendment is a talisman that allows you to conspire and incite violence and insurrection. And so we, we, we have to be careful to define it with precision and not to let it become a sloppy way of justifying uh, any kind of domestic terrorist activity as long as it has a verbal component. Um, so I would say that those are, are critical. But the one other thing I think is very important for the department going forward is to rebuild trust on the part of the American people. <clears throat> Much of what was done politically, direct, directed and driven by the White House, and imposed on the department because particularly towards the end, you didn't have permanent leadership. And so there was kind of a weak governance structure. Much of what was imposed by the White House really created a rupture 
in people's confidence in the non-political nature of the department. You had, for example, the use of things like a family separation, not merely as a way of getting people to attend their hearings and be adjudicated, but as a deterrent by being cruel and punitive with respect to children. I think that created a lot of, of distrust. I think some of the use last year of border uh, security officials in places like Portland to be very aggressive and uh, in some ways, in my mind, overstepping their, their mission, again, created a sense of a department that had become a political tool. So much of what will have to happen initially on the part of Secretary Mayorkas and the White House is to reestablish the sense of a department as a nonpartisan, apolitical agency like the Department of Defense. Secretary Johnson, I'm going to ask you as well for comments that you might have in terms of what, what you think the department needs to address the current problems. But I want to get in, use this as a bridge uh, to ask you to comment on points that you have been uh, very publicly articulate about in the media. And that is the whole issue of white nationalism and racism as a core element of what we're seeing um, exemplified by January 6th. There are many black and white political and community leaders who say that the basic cause of what we are seeing is racism and white backlash against uh, movements like Black Lives Matter. What are your views on this? Is this what defines the right-wing violence that we saw manifested on January 6th? Is this what's driving the potential for long-term violence here? Doug, thanks for the question. It's good to see you again. My former colleague from the Department of Defense, when you were Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs and I was General Counsel, I, uh, I heard the Dean make a very interesting observation about you, that you led the largest communications department any place. Uh, what the Dean may not appreciate is when it comes to the Department of Defense, everything is the largest <laughs> something. Uh, you ran the largest communication shop. I ran the largest law firm. There are 11,000 lawyers in the Department of Defense. It's got the largest fleet of planes, the most ships, the most people. Uh, so everything about the Department of Defense is big. I didn't get to all so. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, I'd also note that um, the four of us former secretaries were very much a club. Sometimes we even get confused for one another. I've walked into bars and restaurants where... HSI agents look at me and say, hello, Secretary Chertoff. Nice to see you again. Uh, for some reason, I've never confused with Governor Ridge, however. He's much better looking and taller. But um, uh, Doug, thank you for the question. It's a very important question. Um, we talk about how we are a nation bitterly divided. I think it goes beyond that. I think that misses the mark in, in many ways. The reality about our country, and I, I hate to say this, but the reality of our country is that there is a strand in our society that is racist, intolerant, prone to violence. Uh, and we saw that on January 6th. We saw it in Charlottesville in 2017. But we saw that also in 1957, the grainy black and white photographs of um, 
people resisting the integration of the school system in Little Rock, Arkansas. We saw it on the university campuses of Mississippi and Alabama in the 1960s as they shouted down black students who wanted nothing more than to get an education. What is new now, and the reason why the alarm bells have to uh, go even higher is this segment of our population has been told it's okay to crawl out from your rock. And they have been emboldened uh, by national leadership to say you're special people, there is good on both sides, and therefore it's okay to go to Charlottesville and demonstrate your hate in the open or go to the US Capitol and engage in what amounted to an insurrection. And that's not going away anytime soon. The reason it's not going away is it's gaining in energy. This group will now be in the opposition. They will no longer feel like they have a voice in the White House. They are going to be in the opposition. Their grievances and anger will only get worse. And the larger problem we have, and, and several of us here, I know Mike has talked about this, Tom and Janet have talked about this. There's an even larger segment of our population that is allowed to exist in a fake news world. They are able to uh, look at things that frame themselves as news and information uh, and, and believe it. They're allowed to believe that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. They're allowed to believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And so the, you add all of this up and it creates, in my judgment, a whole new and very dangerous environment. And if you'll allow me, I wanna answer the questions you put to uh, the prior secretaries. Is DHS equipped to deal with this? The short answer is no. DHS, as Tom knows, was created in 2002 on the assumption that terrorism was an extraterritorial threat from beyond our borders, launched by groups like Al-Qaeda. And if you therefore put in one cabinet level department, all the different ways one can enter this country, land, sea, and air, you've effectively dealt with terrorism. But the principal terrorist threat now in our country is domestic-based. It is right here. And there, there's not a whole lot of DHS police running around the interior looking for domestic terrorism. Many would say there shouldn't be. Uh, and so DHS exists largely on the borders, at the ports, on the land borders, at the airports, uh, Secret Service, FEMA. So DHS itself, Homeland Security itself, is not equipped to deal with this uh, latest threat. And that's why I think the existing administration, the Congress needs to take a hard look at how we might realign our government to better effectively address this threat. Hey, Doug, if I might uh, comment, uh, piggyback yes. the words of my colleagues. First of all, I think all of us agreed uh, that uh, for the past four years, particularly the last uh, one or two, uh, our department, and we have enormous respect and admiration for the men and women that uh, work there and go to work every day trying to make America safer and more secure, but it's been a political pinata. I mean, the president's, a lot of his political um, advocacy that 
attracted him to a certain core group around the country was based in uh, within the department. And so therefore, and they received attacks from both the right and the left. Uh, and uh, one of the biggest challenges, I think uh, Janet pointed out, is uh, for the new secretary, for Secretary Mayorkas to be, to kind of rebuild confidence, rebuild the morale, because it hasn't been subdued and really adversely affected by having been put, not by design, but by presidential uh, by presidential design, not by department design, in the middle of a political maelstrom. The other comment I'd like to make, and perhaps I'm, this is your job, Doug, and I'm not trying to preempt it. One of the areas that I think the new administration needs to explore aggressively is an appreciation that the FBI can't deal with domestic terrorism on their own. DHS wasn't designed to be the primary agency to confront defend against, identify and defend against domestic terrorists. And so you have this paucity of manpower in a major department, FBI only has 35,000 people. At some point in time to deal with the domestic threat, it is my opinion, and I think Secretary Chertoff, Michael pointed out the area of trust. We better begin to understand and appreciate how critically important it is to trust the state and local law enforcement community with the information that is gathered by our, the information gathering capabilities we have at the federal government, you can't secure the country from inside the beltway from either international terrorism or domestic terrorism. And I don't know about how, my, how things changed with my successors, but developing that trust between the federal government and sharing information across the board and letting it down into the state and locals, get 700,000 men and women down there that could be engaged, not individually, but depending department on department and depending on the group you're looking at, could be far more engaged in helping to defend against these uh, domestic terrorists. Secretary Rich, I'm gonna take that excellent point that you have made and, and direct this question to Secretary Napolitano and Secretary Chertoff. Um, and broaden it just a second, if that's all right. If you are to expand the universe of people for whom a responsibility of dealing with this new domestic, with these new domestic threats, um, to, to which responsibility becomes broad. You have today uh, Secretary Austin, Lloyd Austin, at the Defense Department, who is asking each of the services to stand down to examine whether or not there are elements of domestic terrorism within the ranks. Um, there are people who have said that there are such elements even in our own police departments and, and other state and local entities. So in, in asking you, Secretary Napolitano and Secretary Chertoff, um, to comment on what Secretary Ridge had to say, could you also comment on the fact that while it's by no means a majority at all, in terms of the military or our police departments, um, they are not immune. Secretary Napolitano. Okay. Um, well, um, yes, and and um, I was pleased to see that Secretary Austin is um, going to have a, a, a stand down within DOD um, uh, and a, a good hard interior look. 
I think such actions can be taken uh, throughout law enforcement across the country. I want to build on what uh, Secretary Ridge uh, said. Uh, now, when I came to the, the federal government, I came out of a, a state background. I'd been a state AG, I'd been a governor. Uh, and uh, that's really where the, the resources are for dealing with crime uh, in general. Uh, uh, crime is handled by local police departments uh, or your state department of public safety. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's not inherently federal. The federal government, as large as it is, is really not uh, established domestically in, in the way to have the sort of presence that local law enforcement does. Where I think DHS plays a role here and is value add is in not only being a, a consumer of intelligence about uh, groups that are organizing uh, uh, and perhaps planning further um, uh, insurrectionist type activity, uh, but then to share that intel on a real-time basis into the local law enforcement environment uh, so that they know what to watch for uh, and they have uh, actionable information about who to watch out for. Um, and so DHS does have a role to play uh, domestically, but it's, it, in my view, it's really on the information sharing side of the ledger. Secretary Chertoff. Yeah, so, uh, Doug, I agree with what my, you know, uh, Tom and Janet have said. Uh, let me just add a, a few points. First of all, I do think in terms of introspection, uh, that Secretary Austin is correct. I think we have to look in DHS as well. Um, I'm a little concerned about stories that right before the end of the Trump administration, an agreement was signed with the unions for the border agencies that at least gives them the impression they have a veto over policy. And typically the unions have been the most aggressive in promoting kind of a harsh approach to migration. And from a governance standpoint, that's troubling, but it also suggests you need to take a close look to make sure there aren't people pursuing their own agenda. More generally, I would agree that engaging with local and state officials, and not just police, but uh, community leaders, and even people in the social services agencies, may allow you to identify people who are on the way to getting radicalized, but haven't yet become hardcore members of extremist groups and being able to give them an off-ramp and deal with them at the local level in some ways may be the lowest key and most effective way rather than waiting until they wind up mobilizing at the Capitol for another January 6th. The last thing I would say is almost at the other end of the spectrum. You know, we've heard this, someone describe this as lone wolves or domestic. It's actually networked right-wing terrorism. And it is international. I observed to you, for example, that in Germany, they had to disband a commando unit of the military because it was full of Nazi sympathizers. Um, we've seen, for example, Brevik in Norway being cited by the shooter in New Zealand. Um, so using social media, these extremists from around the world are, are inciting each other 
and supporting each other. And so to the extent DHS has learned to collaborate with foreign intelligence and police agencies in terms of sharing information and strategy, that's going to be useful in dealing with right-wing terrorism as well. Secretary Chertoff, let's take the point you've just raised about social media. Um, and let's actually talk about that in terms of DHS, DHS itself. Twitter and Facebook have banned um, former President Trump uh, from using their platforms. And after what a lot of people are saying is too long and possibly too late, um, all, all of those social media platforms, the major ones, are moving more aggressively to prohibit messages promoting hate and violence. I want to start with you, Secretary Johnson, your views on the role and responsibilities of social media in addressing the conflict between free speech and security, and your views about DHS and its relationship, or what should be its relationship in dealing with social media to address these issues? So, um, tough question. Social media platforms, internet service providers should not regard themselves simply as conduits of information like a telephone or an iPhone. Uh, they are more than that. Um, they have the ability to prioritize, to push certain messages at us, depending upon our search patterns and, and, and the like. They're beginning to step up to this responsibility, in, in my observation. Uh, some would argue it's it's a little, little too late. I believe that the government should be reluctant, should resist getting into the business of trying to regulate what is what appears on social media. We don't do that in this country. We don't try to regulate or edit or ban certain types of, uh, of content. Think about what certain actors could do if they had the authority in government to deem something fake news. Um, in terms of what role DHS has, this is something we thought about in the Obama administration. Could DHS, for example, serve as a uh, trusted source of information from groups that should be um, flagged, should, should, should be banned possibly uh, in an advisory role because DHS, along with the intelligence community and the law enforcement community is sometimes in a better position to know uh, than those in, in the private sector. But this, this is a difficult question. I know Mike has thought a lot about this too, um, about what the government's role should be and what more social media can do to do about this. The, it, it, a large part of our problem, as I said earlier, is due to the fact that Americans can believe what they want to believe, hate who they want to hate, based upon things they see on social media that reaffirm their own suspicions and prejudices. Secretary Ridge, do you agree with Secretary Johnson that there, there really shouldn't be, you know, a major role in in uh, telling uh, social media platforms what they can or cannot say? Well, you know, I think before you talk about whether they have a role to play 
I think the answer is yes, they have a role to play. Then again, what is it? I think uh, we probably all agree that the internet is an opportunity for all of us uh, to express uh, our ideas. And we understand that that uh, right of expression is uh, guaranteed uh, by our constitution. But the question becomes, are there guardrails around what can be said and what is appropriate to be said and who should set those guardrails? Uh, we certainly would not uh, be inclined to empower uh, say the FCC to, to monitor content and, de and determine what should uh, flow out to the general public. At the same time, uh, we also take a look at there's some, and again, I'm gonna defer to the, uh, uh, the, the lawyers who've uh, paid a lot more attention to the FCC and the, the Certain Communication Decency Act, I think it is called in section 230 with, that, that protects the internet service providers and uh, protects the social media companies from any potential liability based on what flows through their, uh, uh, to their tube. So one, I think it is worthy of a much more aggressive uh, uh, public conversation than we've ever had before. What I've noted over the past uh, year or two, it's interesting and probably only in America could happen, a variety of nonprofits led by individuals who are very, very cautious about government uh, imposing any kind of uh, restraint on freedom of speech, but actually uh, taking it upon themselves to dive as best they can into the dark web and to identify uh, hashtags, identify organizations associated with promoting the kind of violence that we saw around January 6th, and then making that information available to, I know to the FBI and perhaps to other federal law enforcement agencies. So I think the time has come and in, in, in the 21st century with the ubiquity of the internet and with the fact that it is a means and an outlet for expression, for speech, uh, that we have that kind of public conversation as to in what manner or form do, can we oversee it to see that the incendiary speech and, and the incendiary advocacy, if there's a limit beyond which uh, we can call it, they've exceeded the, they're now call, yelling fire in a crowded theater as it were, and uh, can be held liable accordingly. Uh, I do not pretend to have the legal sophistication to take you down the path to resolve it in that fashion but it's time to think of guardrails. And the only thing I'm very happy to report and comfortable with, because I know some of the individuals and companies that are taking a deep dive into the social media platforms and identifying and identifying the anti-Semitic and identifying uh, the racist and identifying some of the more incendiary groups and how they're promoting this kind of overt activity, much of which we saw manifest itself on uh, January 6th. Secretary Chertoff, let me just ask you here, do you have anything to add here in terms of recommendations about how a government agency like DHS ought to be dealing with social media? Well, I don't think DHS is a regulator of speech, although they can certainly advise and use information as a way of giving a heads up to the platforms if there is something brewing on their platforms that is potentially going to result in violence or uh, hate crimes or things of that sort. But I'd be very careful about empowering a government agency to go after platforms, anything other than what is clearly hardcore 
incitement or um, a cost to violence or child pornography or things like that. I do think there's a broader area where the platforms should exercise responsibility to curate what they have on their sites and willing to remove, to be willing to remove, um, you know, uh, people who are using the sites for nefarious purposes. I mean, that to me is an editorial function, much the same way the newspaper doesn't have to run everybody's letters in the newspaper. And I think more interesting, the platforms recognize, partly because they're getting pressure from advertisers, that um, they do need to be a little bit more aggressive. The last thing I would say is this. One of the real challenges with the platforms, and this is an area where government could compel transparency, is the use of algorithms as a way of driving people down the so-called rabbit hole of extremism. These algorithms are designed mainly for commercial purposes. They're trying to basically get eyeballs and clicks because that increases the value of a site and therefore the advertisers pay more. But a byproduct of the algorithms is that if you go online to look up you know, white identity or something of that sort, it will then begin to recommend sites that are more and more extreme and for some people, that lures them into a very, very dangerous place. So transparency about how algorithms work, how they ought to be restrained, and even barring algorithms for certain kinds of speech, I think would not be a First Amendment problem um, and might have some real value. We've got to take a look at that. Secretary Napolitano, I'm going to ask two questions of you. One, um, to conclude this discussion social media comments that you have on your uh, how you deal with social media as a as a uh, an expander uh, of some of the issues we're having to confront right now but I'd also like you to begin the discussion then on foreign interference uh, in 2016 Russian cyber interference with our election was a major issue and rather than diminish the cyber threats, from foreign nations have only increased. And it's kind of amazing that that issue was not the foremost issue in 2020. It was a different, there were different issues, but nevertheless, that remains a major problem. What's your view about how this administration ought to address those? Well, let me uh, follow up on uh, uh, first what Michael Chertoff said, um, uh, the, the whole, uh, issue of algorithms, uh, I actually think deserves uh, a lot of uh, work and is an area uh, where both the social media companies uh, and perhaps the government can, uh, can come together because the algorithms work exactly as Mike said. They, they're designed to keep people on the site uh, and to keep clicking through and clicking through and clicking through. Uh, and they uh, take people down uh, these uh, rabbit holes uh, into ever more extreme content uh, on the web. And uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, companies should not be immune from liability uh, for how those algorithms are deployed uh, uh, if those um, algorithms lead people ultimately to commit uh, uh 
to go on sites, et cetera, where they become radicalized to the extent of committing acts of violence. So that's an area that really deserves um, uh, examination and, and reform. Uh, with respect to foreign interference uh, in elections, we um, know that the Russians were interfering in our 2016 election. Uh, there uh, was uh, no indication that they, they have stopped that uh, interference, um, but it, it does seem that uh, the United States and DHS through CISA working with election departments throughout the country, uh, we're much better prepared uh, for that. So that, you know, foreign interference in 2020, um, it, it does, does not appear to have been uh, the issue uh, that causes the concern that it did in 2016. But I'd be eager to hear my fellow panelists on that one. Well, you will have a chance now because I'm gonna start with Secretary Johnson and ask his views. So my general attitude, which I conveyed to people at DHS when I was in office, was don't plan for the last attack, plan for the next one. Anticipate the next move of the adversary. And I was inclined to believe that as we approached the 2020 election. The Russians have probably moved on from any attempts at infiltrating our election infrastructure and they're going to try something else. Yet our intelligence community, the, the current intelligence community, um, told us that uh, the lights are all blinking red, that uh, we have to worry about this. The Russians are active in this space, and we need to focus on this. Uh, turned out that wasn't the threat. Uh, instead, it was solar winds, which was a much bigger infiltration, a much bigger hack uh, that infiltrated both the private sector and the government sector. And uh, the, the, the real threat in terms of the election was domestic based. It was the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. So um, you have to, we have to always try to anticipate what, it, what, is, what is coming next. And I agree with Janet that over the last four years, a lot of good work has been done, both by DHS and state election officials, to improve upon the cybersecurity of our, our democracy and our election infrastructure. Secretary Ridge, your thoughts? I think uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Chris Krebs uh, helped uh, debunk the, the big lie uh, with regard to uh, the election results. Uh, there was no uh, tampering uh, at all by the Russians directly into the campaign. But I think it's pretty clear to those of us who stay in touch with the, our friends in the government, and, and, and it's a lot of it just public information and knowledge, so many articles written about the the sustained engagement by Russia and other nation states to use uh, the internet and to use social media platforms as a means of uh, spreading disinformation uh, throughout uh, the country uh, with a mindset toward affecting conduct and attitudes 
attitudes toward the system, the democratic system itself, reinforcing the, the big lie that the, uh, the, the, uh, the election was stolen. Uh, that's an attitudinal, uh, uh, sustaining that mindset, but also promoting the kind of violence that occurred on, uh, on January 6th. So we can probably be comfortable that the adequate precautions were taken to inhibit any nation state from interfering electronically in the electoral process, but the more nefarious and the more sustained and the more ongoing uh, challenge we have with the uh, use of the internet, the malignant use of the internet and social media platforms is the kind of uh, uh, effort to affect attitudes and to promote uh, action. And we've seen that evidenced on January 6th. I mean, there are actually some uh, some reports that, uh, you know, there are groups that follow hashtags and there are hashtags that suggest out there, there may be another public confrontation down the road. So again, uh, the FBI and the intelligence community and those who have far greater cyber capabilities than I do and more insight than I may have into one or two of these organizations that follow uh, this uh, social media traffic and follow specific hashtags, uh, but it's nefarious, it's deep, it's sustained. It's something that uh, uh, we are going, democracies writ large are gonna have to used to, let's face it, the Russians probably intervened in the Brexit debate. Uh, they intervened, uh, I think in French and Italian elections, they tried to intervene in ours. Direct impact on uh, the electoral system in terms of electronically, probably not. But there are so many other ways you can affect outcomes and conduct and attitudes are two of the most critical. We've seen it before. And this is one area where I would say to my friend Jay Johnson, uh, we know they've done it before. This we know they're going to do it again. They'll probably just use different vehicles to do it. Secretary Chertoff, I'm going to ask you to do two things. One, to conclude this part of the discussion and your views on, on Russian and other foreign interference, and also to start the final part of our discussion on immigration. Um, all four of you have had to deal with the issue of immigration um, during your tenure. And so, Secretary Chertoff, after you've addressed the Russian uh, issue in talking about immigration, what would be your major recommendation to incoming Secretary Mayorkos in terms of what he needs to be aware of on, on dealing with the issue of immigration based on your own personal experience and lessons learned during your own tenure? So um, just on the Russians, um, I, I fully assume the Russians are going to continue to try to influence uh, attitudes in the U.S., create dissension, even incite violence. I mean, if you look at some of the indictments that uh, Bob Mueller and his office filed, you see that the Russians don't only operate on one, they even send people over um, to kind of ferment hostility between right wing and left wing groups. Uh, this is right out of the old Soviet playbook. This hasn't changed. If you want to get a, an example of, right, of the full panoply of Russian tactics, look at Ukraine, where you not only have disinformation, you have cyber attacks, and you also have use of so-called, quote, militias that actually spur violence and rebellion. 
So I fully expect we'll see more of that. One of the big issues for the incoming administration is going to be to send a very clear message, which I think President Biden did in his first call with Putin, that we will not suffer in silence and we will respond forcefully to efforts to subvert our unity or our system. But I think this is going to be an ongoing challenge. On the issue of immigration, this can be very hard. And I know that Secretary Orgas dealt with this when he was Deputy Secretary um, under my successors. Um, obviously, the, the irrationality and hostility and cruelty of the prior administration must be disavowed. But at the same time, I think he's going to have to be careful not to somehow suggest, you know, everybody come on in, doors wide open, because that will cause a very, very stiff negative reaction. So I think what has to happen, you need to have the resources and the strategy to encourage legitimate asylum seekers to, to um, per, you know, make their applications and have them rapidly adjudicated. Um, I actually believe there is room for um, increasing the amount of legal migration and temporary worker programs. But at the same time, you have to be willing to enforce the laws against people who don't want to take the legal route, uh, but who want to sneak in somehow and then just dodge law enforcement. So I think Secretary Morris is going to have to balance um, tough enforcement where you're dealing with people who are not playing by the rules, but applying the rules in a fair and, and generous way and adjudicating matters uh, promptly and fairly. And there's going to be pressure on both sides. Some people are going to be waiting to pounce saying it's open borders. And on the other side of the spectrum, some people are going to say, now finally we can just open the door to everybody. So that's, in my personal view, that's going to be a very, very big uh, issue for the new secretary to deal with. Secretary Napolitano, same question to you. Well, I think immigration is amongst the most difficult public policy issues we have in our country. And part of it stems from the inability of Congress to deal with it comprehensively and to update our laws to better reflect our values, to better reflect economic reality um, in the United States. And so uh, the department is charged with enforcing a law that is you know, sorely out of date. I mean, I think there are some tasks that um, Secretary Mayorkas can take on uh, immediately. Uh, they need to move resources to the border so they can begin to adjudicate the asylum claims of the 60,000 or so asylum applicants that have been uh, uh, sent to Mexico to wait for the adjudication of their claims. Some of, uh, some of those applicants have been waiting for uh, two years or more. Uh, those claims need to be dealt with. Um, he, he needs to uh, rejuvenate the resettlement of refugee uh, uh, program. Uh, President Biden has said that he wants to uh, lift the cap on refugees. Um, uh, under President Trump, he'd reduced it to 15,000. Effectively, 
Uh, it was almost zero this last year, in part due to COVID. Uh, uh, President Biden wants to raise it to uh, 125,000 or, or so. Uh, but the resettlement program that goes along with that has been gutted. So uh, um, Secretary Mayorkas needs to reinstitute that. He's already in charge of a task force to uh, try to reunify uh, parents and children who were separated uh, under the Trump administration uh, and uh, where they haven't yet been able to uh, reunify those families. And so that's a very difficult task because uh, the parents were deported uh, uh, back to their countries of origin from whatever village or town they came from. There were no records were kept. Um, and uh, the children, likewise, were moved around the United States. No records uh, apparently were kept. So uh, trying to reunify those families is a difficult administrative task. Uh, in terms of interior enforcement, uh, uh, that's done by ICE, Immigration and Customs in Enforcement. Uh, and there, I think, um, Ali needs to reinstitute the priorities uh, for enforcement that we set under the Obama administration, uh, that you focus on uh, those in the country illegally who've committed other crimes, uh, um, who are known security threats or known uh, members of violent gangs uh, and concentrate your immigration enforcement uh, authorities there. Uh, that you stop some of the uh, processes that were deployed under the prior administration, um, uh, waiting outside of uh, schools, waiting outside of courthouses to see if you can find somebody who's undocumented and is in the country. But to be more targeted and more strategic, uh, there are too many people in the country who are undocumented to be able to uh, deport all of them. Uh, and so you have to identify those that uh, also present the greatest public safety risk uh, to the country. And uh, getting ICE back on a priorities-based enforcement um, uh, uh, process um, uh, and discipline, uh, 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 that will be a leadership challenge for Ali. Secretary Ridge and Secretary Johnson, you will get the final words on this question before we turn to general questions from our audience. So Secretary Ridge, from your own experience, any advice for the new secretary? Well, I, I want to be associated. Uh, thank you, Doug. I do want to be associated with the remarks of my colleagues. And I had just two or three additional points. Uh, I was a, a young congressman in the middle of the 80s. The last time we had any significant effort to come up with a, a broad and more comprehensive immigration uh, plan. Now, fast forward 35 years, uh, we are still operating under uh, without an immigration plan. And it's time that both parties, both sides of the aisle, in my mind, quit playing political football with the issue of immigration and began developing a plan consistent with our needs internally, as well as our moral conviction that those who seek to come to the United States, there should be a pathway to do that including a pathway to citizenship. One or two final comments I would make 
is that one, I just don't think given the visit nature and I'll just say divisive rather than dysfunctional, but right now the divisions between the parties that a major broad, all-inclusive comprehensive package of legislative reform in the area of immigration uh, is very unlikely to pass. So it encouraged uh, both sides of the aisle to look seriously, set priorities and build out over the next year uh, or two, some incremental, significant, substantive, incremental changes, policy changes in the area of immigration. And the other observation I would make, because not only did I, was I had the opportunity to vote on that last uh, effort at immigration reform as a young congressman, but I saw the value of immigration as governor of Pennsylvania, where believe it or not, agriculture is the number one industry. And we literally had thousands and thousands of men and women traveled north for six or seven months and then head back uh, to uh, their countries in Mexico, Central and Central uh, America and Mexico. And I just like to remind, and I may be wrong and I could be dissuaded of this, but not everybody that wants to work here necessarily wants to become an American citizen. Uh, there's this bit of an arrogant that the arrogance that says that everybody who comes across the border wants to stay. Uh, they'd like to come across the border to work, and they'd also like to go back home, uh, back to their family, back to their community, back to their culture. So I think one of the first things they ought to try working on is a, uh, uh, gotta, I want all those men and women uh, who are in our military right now to be at the front in the line to get their citizenship. But one of the other <laughs> initiatives we had to take is a, a worker, guest worker policy that gives these men and women an opportunity to go back and forth. It enhances, uh, it, it, it's smart, it's something the country needs, and it's certainly consistent uh, with uh, our, our uh, with, I think, moral leadership uh, in treating our neighbors with respect and treating their citizens accordingly. Secretary Johnson, building on what Secretary Ridges just said, I want to ask you the same question with, with a little bit of a twist, if you don't mind. And that is you, of the four of you, you were the most recent um, Secretary of Homeland Security. And after you, there was a truly different approach to immigration over the last four years, a, a diametrically opposed set of, of policies with regards to immigration. So you may well agree that you probably don't start from, the Secretary Mayorkos doesn't start from where you ended. He starts from where the last four years have ended. Um, with that in mind, what are the two or three most basic things that you think he needs to do with regards to immigration as a result of the policies of the last four years? You're right. I dealt with this issue uh, the most recent among the four of us for three years. I had this issue. Uh, I will tell you, immigration was the most difficult public policy issue, national security issue, any other issue I dealt with in public office. More difficult than drone strikes, Guantanamo, repealing don't ask, don't tell, cyber attacks, the Secret Service. It was the most difficult issue. And it's difficult, not because there aren't answers. There are answers to our broken immigration system. Uh, there are common sense answers, but they are politically unobtainable 
We've come close to passing comprehensive immigration reform in Congress several times, not just in the 1980s, but as recently as 2013, 2014. Most Americans before Trump uh, and after Trump, I believe, most Americans believe that we should treat fairly and humanely, consistent with American values, those who are here and those who seek to come here and seek asylum, uh, want to become refugees or are refugees from another land, consistent with our values. Most Americans believe that if you've been here for 10 years or more, um, you should be given a chance to be accountable and get on the books and pay taxes as long as you haven't committed crimes. Most Americans believe, as Janet said, that we should prioritize who we deport. We should not just round up everybody like the last administration tried to do and deport anybody, everybody. We should prioritize, we should use our resources to prioritize the dangerous, those who are convicted felons. Most Americans believe we should take care of the dreamers, take care of the DACA class. There are, there are you know, as Janet knows, um, scores and scores of, of uh, DACA kids, students at, at UC. Um, most Americans also believe that we should have a secure border. You go to Laredo, Texas, for example, in Southern Texas, even there, it's 85% Mexican American. They believe we need to keep our border under control, uh, but do so in a smart way, not just building a wall for the sake of building a wall. Um, Ali's got a tough job in the wake of Donald Trump and Stephen Miller. I mean, they believed in deterrence on steroids. Uh, their, their approach to immigration was, I'm going to make it so horrible for you to come here, you'd never think about coming here. It, inhumane, it was cruel, child separation, and he's got to work his way back from that. And at the same time, he's got to deal with increasing levels of illegal migration on our southern border right now. I just saw a report that we're up to over 3,000 a day on the southern border. That's a lot. Uh, in my day, five, six years ago, over 1,000 was a bad day. Under 1,000 was a relatively good, good, good day. We're up to 3,000 now. Um, and so he's got he's to get control of that. Ultimately, and I know President Biden believes this because we spent time talking about it. Ultimately, you got to deal with the problem at the source. You have to address the poverty and violence in Central America that is causing migrants to flee their homes in the first place. And unless we do that, we're going to continue to bang our head against this wall because there's no level of defense you can put on the southern border to prevent people who are making the very basic decision to flee a burning building, to flee a very, very dangerous part of the world. One of our uh, audience wants to know, what are the elements and the process for designating an organization or an individual as a domestic terrorist threat? Well, there's uh, 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 several criteria. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen them uh, written down, but uh, common sense uh, tells you that uh, it is uh, similar to an international terrorist threat. It is a, a, a group um, uh, uh, or indeed it can be an individual 
uh, intent on committing an act of violence uh, for the purpose of destabilizing or undercutting uh, governmental institutions. Doug, it's important to know that there is no legal mechanism for designating a domestic group as a terrorist organization. We designate foreign terrorist organizations as such uh, overseas. Uh, there's a lot of thought being given to should we designate uh, domestic organizations or can we des designate domestic organizations as terrorist organizations. A lot of people in law enforcement will tell you that would not have much of a legal effect because we have the tools now on the books legally to prosecute those who are inclined toward terrorism in this country. I think that's probably the best way to summarize it. I think Janet's right. I'm not sure, and Jay's right. I'm not sure there's a specific definition, but you know, if you've, uh, there's a violent act uh, targeted toward a uh, civilian uh, individual or group in order to affect uh, a change in uh, public policy, that would be a, a terrorist act. And you just uh, arrest them and convict them under uh, a criminal statute. So uh, uh, it's like everything else, you know, domestic terrorism, when you see it. Secretary Chertoff, given just the broad number of organizations, both domestic and foreign, that pose threats to the United States, um, is it too much for DHS? Should there be um, a broader mandate that includes other government organizations which now don't have the responsibilities that DHS does? Well, I, I don't think adding more organizations is what's useful here. Um, I mean, right now, if you're dealing with terrorism issues, the two principal organizations that domestic with DHS and then the FBI does the investigation, the Department of Justice actually prosecutes. And that's more or less the division of labor. Uh, you know, DHS is basically operating defensively, uh, trying to harden uh, a critical infrastructure, resilience, and also managing and patrolling air, sea, and land in the U.S. for people coming in from outside or, for example, attacking aviation. Um, obviously, when you deal with overseas terror, you also have DOD and the intelligence agencies like CIA also get involved in targeting and uh, um, disrupting terrorist attacks that are being generated from overseas. So I think it's just a question of um, orienting the scope of what we're looking at, particularly on the intelligence collection, to look at threats that are more or less white supremacist or extremist, in addition to continuing to look at jihadis and other kinds of dangerous groups. As I said earlier, these white extreme groups are international themselves. They have links overseas and in much the same way as some of the genetic groups did, they may be loose networks, but they are networks. Michael uh, outlined uh, for the audience, for you in the audience, the uh, general responsibilities uh, of the, the department that were embedded in from the get-go. Uh, it was a process where, uh, frankly, uh, in the bowels of the White House uh, during the several weeks that the creation of the department was under discussion, there were a variety of different organizations, independent organizations. They were the aggregation of potential uh, uh, entities to be melded into DHS uh, was much broader than ultimately 
uh, the, the configuration uh, that was finally approved by Congress. It needs to go no further. Um, and uh, But it does need leadership now, which it has with a very able secretary. It needs to have all those vacancies uh, that were unfilled for much of the past four years to be completed. It needs to have its morale boosted and needs to get out of the center of much of the political activism uh, that was generated by priorities that the president had set that turned it into a political pinata. And at the same time, uh, I'd like to think that this administration with the secretary will appreciate the role and relationship it has developed under from the outset. And I think Michael would speak to it, Janet would speak to it, Jay would speak to it. I think a pretty solid relationship with state and locals to, to, to firm that up again and then to enhance some of the intelligence and information and some of the training and some of the collaboration with the state and locals to deal with this uh, uh, with these uh, domestic uh, groups, whether they're from the right or the left, that I think are going to be uh, a challenge for this and future administrations for a significant period of time. You don't need to put any new organizations in there. We've got new leadership, fill the vacancies, rebuild the morale, and take advantage of the relationships that existed that I think were torn apart in large measure by uh, some of the actions taken by the previous administration. And uh, I think the worst, grossest example I happen to think was the abuse of sending in DHS personnel into Portland. Uh, DHS wasn't designed to be the militia. Uh, there are plenty of other uh, domestic law enforcement agencies could have helped the federal government deal with that. So those would be my recommendations to uh, the secretary. And I think all of us are absolutely delighted that he was appointed. And finally, his uh, nomination uh, went through. We're, we're pleased for him, pleased for the department. Thank you. Secretary Napolitano, in posing this final question to all four of you, I want to go beyond the structure of DHS or DHS per se. In, in the four of you here, you not only have four previous secretaries of the Department of Homeland Security, you have four Americans um, who have become synonymous with honesty and trust and respect. You are respected in the fields of politics, in the fields of policy, and in the fields of law. Um, and with that in mind, I'd like to combine questions that raised issues like the following. Questions about economic inequality contributing to the kinds of violence we're seeing. Racism and racial inequality to the kind of violence we're seeing. Issues regarding freedom of speech and civil liberties and issues regarding the political divisions that are as stark as I think any of us have ever seen in our lifetimes in this country. So I wanna begin this question with a comment from the great 1960s philosopher, Joan Baez, um, who was a leader during the protest movements of the 1960s and has been quoted as saying that in comparing the violence of the 60s and the violence of today that back then, protests were based on a feeling of community and that such a feeling does not exist today. President Biden has used as his major message, the call for unity as the way to overcome chronic violence. So I would just like to ask each of you, what your advice would be to this administration in terms of 
unity and whether that is the term to use and how you address a sense of community in order to also address some of the problems that you had to face in your cabinet positions. I think uh, President Biden's inaugural speech was a very important first step uh, toward uh, the healing that is uh, long overdue, uh, and not simply because of uh, some of the, uh, because of what happened or didn't happen during the past uh, four years, but what has been a, a, a certain turbulence in the public square, maybe for the past 15 or 20. And the call for unity, at least in my mind, embeds in it a restoration of the civility in the public space, civility in the public debate, civility toward one another. And unless and until it, that I think our political leadership in this uh, country, and it goes on both sides of the aisle, uh, quit demonizing one another, uh, be more respective of each other's belief and work much harder to find common ground we're going to continue to see these divisions uh, fester and, frankly, get even worse. Uh, the best example I have for this, and it relates to President Biden, I was had occasion to work with a wonderful college in my con old congressional district that awarded a civility award on an annual basis. And one year they said, uh, what about Vice President Biden and John McCain? And because I've been privileged in my public life to know them both, I said, great, let me talk to each one of them. And as soon as one found the other was being so recognized and celebrated, they both immediately said yes. The point being, I think John McCain's view of the world and policy writ large, probably yeah, there may have been some points of overlap with the uh, then Vice President Biden, but I suspect there were wide differences. But there's a certain element of respect and admiration they had for one another. Maybe it had to do with their respective backgrounds, but they had learned that they were, that the country came first. And no matter whether you agree or disagree with them, that's the mindset they took. And I think the biggest challenge we have going forward to bring some substance back to the debate, the public policy arena, and to finally move this country more aggressively, move us forward rather than just turning every political issue and policy into a political football in order to win the next election. Uh, we need civility. And the other thing I think we need to remind our elected representatives on both sides of the aisle, there's two parts of the governing equation. You run to win and you win to govern. And both parties hopefully will remind themselves from time to time that the second part of the equation is why you got elected in the first place. And my judgment is we need to re restore civility uh, to the public arena. And I think Vice President is just the man to try to do it. And I think that it should be a strong bipartisan response to his outreach. Thank you. Secretary Chertoff, your three minutes on this issue. You know, I think this has been a challenge. It's been building over a long period of time, not just in the last four years. I think Trump was a culmination of the sense on the part of a significant number of people, a minority, but still a significant number, that they were being disregarded and disrespected. And that anger caused them to really question all the foundations of what binds us together as a nation. So I think Biden has made 
exactly the right first steps in terms of talking about union, um, avoiding trying to be anger, angry or finger pointing. There's going to be a balance between accountability on the one hand and not appearing to be vindictive on the other. And I think that's got to be um, addressed carefully. And I would say also transparency and honesty in government. All right, it's not going to be an overnight cure, but that will help build a sense of because to my mind in the end, what really makes us together is mutual trust and trust in our institutions. One final thing, this is not just a gun issue, this is an all of society issue. We need to get our business leaders, our religious leaders, our thought leaders, um, everybody who's in our media, our, our, our general media, have to begin to internalize the idea that, as Tom said, it's not just about winning, but it's about doing things in the right way. Because only if we all work to move away from highlighting extremism or craziness, can we begin, it's going to take a while, can we begin to build the bonds of trust, which are the predicate to getting this unity of effort we so much desire to attain? Thank you, Secretary Chertoff. Secretary Napolitano, you are the host here uh, and have gathered us together. So you get the designated hitter spot at the end. And so I'm going to turn to Secretary Johnson uh, for his comments on this question of unity. Doug, your question brings to mind my father. Uh, My father passed away eight days ago. Tomorrow I'm going to go to Nashville, Tennessee to bury him alongside his parents and his two brothers. My father spanned, his life spanned 16 presidents from Herbert Hoover to Joseph Biden. When my father was born in 1931, his grandfather, who was an emancipated slave, was still alive. During my father's lifetime, he saw Jim Crow. He lived in the segregated South. He saw several wars, World War II. He saw the Great Depression. He saw the Korean War. He saw the Vietnam War. He saw the advent of the color TV, uh, the mobile phone, the iPhone. He saw the election of a black president, something he and I never thought we'd see in the course of our lifetimes. And he saw his own son sworn in as a member of the cabinet of that president. Uh, His father, my grandfather, was a sociologist. He lived his entire life in the segregated South. He talked a lot about civil rights in the 40s and 50s. And if you were a black man with a PhD in the 40s and 50s, and you talked a lot about civil rights, you also had an FBI file. And my own grandfather in 1949 testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee to deny he was a, a member of the Communist Party. But he was also an optimist. The month before he died in 1956, he wrote something for the New York Times that I want to share with your your audience, which I suspect includes a lot of students. Uh, This is something that my grandfather believed, my father believed, and I believe now, even given the current state of our, our democracy. Let me just take a moment. It is variously expected that Negro Southerners, as a result of their limited status, in the racial system would be bitter or hostile or impatient or indifferent. Bitterness grows out of hopelessness and there is no sense of hopelessness in this situation. 
however uncomfortable and menacing and humiliating it may be at times. Faith in the ultimate strength of the democratic philosophy and code of this nation as a whole has always been stronger than the impulse to despair. I believe that too. Thanks. Secretary Johnson, thank you so much. And I know on behalf of everyone here, we express our condolences to you on the passing of your father. And I know the pride that he absolutely felt um, in his son. Secretary Napolitano, um, in turning this to you for the final words on the issue of unity and on what President Biden has, chal has challenged this country in order to most effectively deal with the problems that you and your colleagues had to deal with at Homeland Security. I wanna first thank and congratulate you and your colleagues for the founding of this center and congratulate you especially on this outstanding discussion. Uh, it is a tribute to you um, that your colleagues would come and participate in it. And also to say thank you very much for letting me have a seat at your table and offer you a menu. And now Secretary Napolitano, your views on unity and your closing thoughts. Well, thank you, Doug, and uh, I want to thank you, and I want to thank Tom and Michael and Jay for spending some time uh, uh, with us. You have been uh, great leaders and great colleagues um, uh, confronting all the challenges uh, uh, that a Secretary of Homeland Security has to confront. Uh, I, I, I believe it is one of the most difficult uh, uh, jobs in the entire uh, federal government, but uh, one of the most rewarding at the same time. You know, uh, I, I think Jay's words were um, uh, beautifully stated, uh, uh, and I agree uh, with them and with the comments of, of uh, my uh, other two colleagues. Let me add one final thought, uh, which is that I... I, I think that the disunity that we are experiencing in our country emanates in part from uh, a lack of trust, a lack of trust in our institutions, a lack of trust in our government, a lack of trust in the media, uh, a lack of trust uh, in, in uh, uh, higher education. Uh, uh, and, and uh, so I think restoring that trust uh, will help us restore some sense of unity. So uh, for President uh, Biden, I think that he restores that trust by demonstrating that government can indeed work to improve the um, uh, economic prosperity uh, the safety and security, and the and the sense of a future, a sense of hope uh, amongst the American people. Uh, I think you can restore that sense of trust by uh, getting control of this pandemic and getting uh, a vaccination plan out and rolling, uh, so that we can uh, get this pandemic uh, behind us. I think you can restore that sense of trust. Uh, by taking on uh, uh, in a in a in a reasoned and reasonable way some of the major issues that uh, confront our country, uh, be they uh, immigration, uh, be they issues emanating from climate climate change, uh, 
be they issues of income inequality, uh, um, uh, you know, th- these are big issues and we talk about them a lot. Uh, a president can help lead us uh, to, uh, to helping to resolve them. And I think by uh, showing that government can work and can work for the people, uh, that will uh, help restore trust. And out of trust, I think, comes a, a greater unity of effort and of purpose and a sense of country. So that's my, uh, that is my hope for uh, President Biden as he undertakes um, his presidency. Thank you all. And Secretary Napolitano, I will leave it to you and pass the baton for closing of this seminar. Thank you, Doug. I want to again thank uh, Tom Ridge and Michael Chertoff, Jay Johnson and and Doug Wilson uh, for uh, participating in this inaugural event of the Center for Security in Politics. Uh, We will uh, put up a slide um, uh, that shows uh, a link to the webpage for additional information about the center. I want to thank Dean Brady and uh, the Goldman School for uh, hosting me as we develop this new center, uh, which I uh, anticipate and and have great optimism will contribute uh, uh, much to our discussions on what is really meant by security in politics. Thank you all very much. Mm -hmm.